Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. It's a warm Saturday evening in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm sitting at a restaurant table with a half dozen other people. We're outside, sipping drinks and chatting. Well, everyone else is chatting. It's a meetup for Latin speakers. There are teachers here, students too, and former students, people who studied the language years ago. Everyone here just loves speaking Latin. Speaking Latin, you may ask? Isn't the thing about Latin that people don't speak it anymore? Well, these people do. They talk about books and TV shows, they exchange jokes, but mainly they talk in Latin about Latin. I'm Abby Holt. Uh, I teach at the middle school up in Erlington, and I teach Latin. I ask Abby to explain how this group of people, how any group of people, can agree on a way to pronounce the words. Abby tells me there isn't really a single standard. Latin was widely spoken for more than 1,200 years, and then not so widely spoken for another 800 years. The pronunciation changes over time, but what, yeah, we're using what we think is the closest to like Caesar and Virgil. And that's based on things like spellings and the way poetry is written to sort of reflect pronunciation. Poetry's revealing that way. Once you figure out which syllables in a poem are stressed and which words are supposed to rhyme, you're part of the way there. But there are other complications. Accents and dialects came and went over time. So today's Latin speakers are sometimes reduced to guesswork. And of course, today, in the year 2022, there's, you know, modern life. I mean, you have to invent some new words for new things, but you try really hard to adhere to as much of the ancient language as possible. So that when you talk about a shower, you're talking about a rain bath, balneum pluviale. Those are both ancient words. So it's a way of trying to practice all the ancient words, but yeah, you got to invent some new stuff. So here's the great thing about Latin. It's both dead in the sense that nobody is born, very few people, are born and raised to speak Latin. There are a few out there. Uh, but it is changing a little bit. Like we've had to invent gender neutral language. And so it's not totally dead. So I tend to call it undead. <laughs> I do. My students like it. So it does change a little bit. But you really do. The whole point is to read the ancient text so you don't want to zoom too far off. So how much zooming off from ancient Rome should you do? How far is too far? People don't agree. But the conversationalists here, they're pretty relaxed about talking about anything, ancient or modern, and occasionally throwing in an English word, like the title of a TV show. The point is to talk, says Diane Warren Anderson. She teaches Latin at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. She says her life was, and I'm quoting here, transformed after she went to a week-long Latin-only immersion workshop. You come home and pick up a Latin text, and it's like, it's like you gained 10 years of experience in that one week just because you were immersed in the language. All of a sudden, it's come alive inside your own head instead of being something separate from you on the page. Most of the people who are opposed to it have not given it a fair try. <laughs> From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, this is Subtitle. Stories about languages and the people who speak them. In this episode, why Latin? 
Why today? And what about tomorrow? Does Latin have a future? Hi, Christina. Hi, Patrick. This is Christina Quinn, journalist, podcaster, former Latin student. I loved Latin straight out of the gate from day one. I don't know, it just really struck a chord with me. I started studying it in seventh grade and I loved it. But the really big thing for me was realizing how it's like the key to the English language. Like suddenly this whole world of where English came from opened up to me. It's like the key to the world. Not that it felt that way at the start. Christina went to Boston Latin Academy, where, surprise, surprise, studying Latin was mandatory. In their first semester, the students didn't get too much into grammar. They just learned words, which Christina got a huge kick out of. I just thought it was fun. It was like Agricola, farmer, puer, boy, puella, girl, like just like, oh. So then like, you know, I think my friends and I, when we would nerd out, we would essentially just replace English words with Latin words. But, you know, we weren't doing it correctly. Like we weren't using correct grammar. I was just peak nerd, peak Christina the nerd, you know, straight out of six years of parochial school where we had to wear uniforms had no sense of like what was and wasn't cool, so to speak. I mean, now I know I'm really cool. Like clearly I'm so cool. That's Christina, nerdy cool, a high school category that didn't exist in her time, but it very much does now. And without getting scientific about this, I'll venture to say that love of Latin gives you an automatic pass to join the nerdy cool set. When you were doing all of the nerding out and all of that, working Latin into conversations, I mean, did you have in your textbook, like, sample conversations? Like, with languages that are still spoken, there's all of these dialogues that you go through and painstakingly try to figure out. And does that happen in Latin? Do you have, like, a, you know, centurion chats with, (laughs) you know, a Christian who's about to be thrown to the lions or something. I don't know. No, like, would we time travel in our Latin speak? <laughs> no, no, I think it was far more pedestrian than that. We would just, I think, try to have contemporary conversations using Latin. I remember, like, being on the school bus. It was a field trip. And I remember, like, seeing, like, the ambulance drive by, you know, it has ambulance written on it. And I remember thinking to myself, ambulance comes from ambulo. And just, like, little things like that. Loving that I knew where that word came from. I just felt like it just sort of, everything sort of clicked into place. You know, I think knowing where the English language comes from, from Latin and Greek, and I think just knowing that is really cool, and I think it's really important. I I refused, I mean, I think you've noticed that I have not used the word dead language, because it's not dead. To me, I think that's insulting. (laughs) It is not dead. It is very much alive in the English we speak today. And also, in the English the next generation speaks. Well, maybe. I have two daughters, and my oldest, who's eight, if she asks me what a word means, I find myself telling her what it means, and then I'll explain you know, where that word came from, if it has a connection to Latin. So I've actually found myself more recently, like in the last couple of years, really valuing that education, because it's sort of fun to pass that wisdom on to her and just even though she may not retain it because she's eight and she's like, okay, yeah, whatever, mom. But I hope she has the opportunity to study it. I mean, the town that we're in, they don't offer it, which bums me out. 
Are schools in the U.S. and elsewhere still teaching Latin? Do enough people still value it? Christina wants to know. So she sets me some homework. More, more, some, more. No, not that kind of homework. But I do find answers for her. That's coming up. It's podcast recommendation time. Every other week, our opinions are correct takes on a topic that's related to what we know, science, and to what we imagine science fiction. And that's fertile territory for great discussion. Everything from the fate of the universe to how to write a good fight scene. The hosts of Our Opinions Are Correct are Charlie Jane Anders. She's an award-winning author of several science fiction novels. And Annalee Newitz. She's a science journalist who writes for The New York Times and The Atlantic. I especially like the episodes where they focus on something commonplace like food or crime or money, and then they look at these things through the prism of science and sci-fi, which often changes how we think about them. The podcast is Our Opinions Are Correct. You know where to subscribe, Apple Podcasts and everywhere else. Hi again, Christina. Hi, Patrick. <laughs> Long time no speak. I know, it's been a while. Well, guess what? I have some answers to your questions. I'm dying to hear them. Okay, so here was Christina's first question. So with curricula, that's plural for curriculum, <laughs> um, I am curious to know if Latin is in danger or if it's, you know, it, on the flip side, maybe it's thriving. Maybe is it having a comeback? What are school districts doing to decide whether they should keep it or not? Well, the answer to that is it's yes and no. So for many years, for decades, in fact, basically the second half of the last century, Latin programs were in decline pretty much the whole time and at times uh, in pretty sharp decline. But more recently, that has stabilized. The numbers then no longer going down. Maybe you can help me here, but it may be that what is left are the truly committed. Yeah, the holdouts. The, <laughs> the guards of the of the ancient language. Perhaps they're like the, the last holdouts. They're like, wait a minute, no. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, I met some pretty committed people, deeply, deeply committed to Latin. I was so impressed that even though you can't visit a country where, you know, Latin is the official language, it does not matter. To these people. Like, we am Tom Hilarum essay. Like, oh, So, this is a group of people who meet like every month in a public place and they speak quite loudly in Latin. They have these conversations in Latin. Really? Colloquial Latin? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in case you're wondering what they talk about, it's not just, you know, chariots or gods or volcano eruptions or something like that. I mean, <laughs> well, Vesuvius the, is at it again. <laughs> no, the conversations, they, they don't shy away from modern life. The thing that I really like more than anything else was that they talked about a movie. I don't know if you've seen this movie called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Oh my goodness. It's on, it's my number one movie to watch. I need to see this movie. You do. But I have to tell you, I would struggle to explain what it is about in English, let alone in Latin. And there they were talking about it in Latin. 
I'm really curious as to how they were able to do that. They did explain to me, as did other people, that there is a lively debate over conversational Latin. Firstly, whether or not it's useful. There are some people who just think it's a waste of time. These people obviously didn't. But even among those who do embrace conversational Latin, there's various levels of comfort with how you come up with words for modern stuff and whether you want to be grammatically correct, whether you flip to English just for the purposes of keeping conversation going. There's just many different choices that could be made. I love it. It's almost like a, it's a bilingual conversation in many ways. Yeah, although, I mean, I, you know, 90, 95 to 100 percent Latin. It's, wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, based on the time I spent with these folks. Christina and I also talked in our earlier conversation about a massive project called the Thesaurus Linguae Latinae. Despite that word thesaurus, this is actually a dictionary, and people have been working on it for more than a century. The idea is to list every word that we know exists in ancient Latin and include every single citation of that word. That is quite the undertaking, and clearly none of these folks have ever heard of a deadline. I have to, I mean, I want to know, like, how big is it? You know, like, how big is this? It's got to be a tome. Obviously, it's been digitized at this point, I would hope. I'm curious to know where they're sourcing all of the words. I mean, there's definitely a class system in ancient Rome. There are people who were far more educated than others. Are they including the words of, you know, the peasants? Oh, I have so many questions. This is a very exciting project. There was only one place to get the answers, the headquarters of the Thesaurus Linguae Latinae in Munich. So Adam Gittner is how I say my name. My title here in German is Wissenschaftlicher Mitarbeiter. It's hard to find an English equivalent, something like scientific collaborator, but you can call me a lexicographer if you, if you prefer. Adam told me a bunch of fascinating things about the dictionary and how it works, much of which I don't have the time to get into in this episode. But here, at least, are Adam's answers to Christina's questions. So the first volume was printed in 1900, so they, they really started to print in alphabetical order very quickly. Um, and we're still moving in alphabetical order, so we're working on R and N right now. We write articles now... Uh, using Microsoft Word. I mean, the biggest change, though, has been the availability of databases that we can search. So we have a physical database with, with all of the occurrences of the words still written out, which we add to, too, when new texts are found from our time period. But now we have databases that we can use to check the reliability of that information. Oh, my goodness. It sounds forensic in a way. I don't know if that's the right word, but it, to me, that's it's just it's so granular, you know? And I love the fact that they're still adding to it as they find these, yeah. this new original material. How do they keep like unearthing new material? Like where are they finding this new material? Well, I don't think they are finding it. I think they're talking about new material, say at Pompeii or you know some other place that was covered in volcanic ash that you hear about. Like occasionally, they got to the end of the street in one of these small towns that they hadn't previously got to. You know, they got a couple more villas, and then there was Amazing. some inscriptions, and there they have a whole new 
set of you know that's another two years added to the thesaurus's end end time. Amazing. You also asked about the source material, whether the dictionary reflects the language of all people in society, not just the higher-ups. The patricians. And Adam had a very interesting answer. Yeah, where to start with this? It's a fantastic question. Check, check, Christina. That's good. (laughs) One of the things that's really revolutionary about the thesaurus as a dictionary is it gives equal weight to all of the evidence for Latin that exists. So someone who's a really elite, fancy speaker like Cicero or Virgil has the same space in the dictionary as a graffito that survives in a latrine in Pompeii. And these very different kinds of language users are coexisting. And the reason why a lot of 19th century dictionaries and even modern diction, I mean, there have been other dictionaries in the 20th century of Latin are inadequate is because they they really fail to give attention to non-literary uses of Latin. For us, the the non-literary uses of Latin are often more interesting than the literary uses because we have dozens of of literary texts that use the word in a certain way. But sometimes a graffito in Pompeii preserves a meaning that otherwise we wouldn't know about. And that sort of unique individual kind of occurrence is is more interesting and more relevant to us. Can you give me an example of a a graffito in Pompeii that is included? I'm interested to hear what holes it fills in our knowledge. Yeah, so you have, for example, someone writing about his girlfriend on a wall, and he calls her Regina, a queen. And he doesn't mean that she's literally part of a royal family. He means that she is sort of a very precious person to him. That's a meaning that's not very well attested, a kind of affectionate use of of this word that survives because, you know, someone happened to write it down, a kind of informal use of the word, things like that. There are all sorts of other non-literary Latin texts that survive, lots of army documents that give us, you know, titles of of Roman soldiers and tell us about what they eat and the deliveries they make in Egypt and North Africa. So that gives us a different kind of access to everyday life. Of course, it's always really hard to get at the sort of lowest classes because these people aren't usually literate. And and when their language survives, it survives only indirectly through people writing it down. The last thing that Christina and I talked about in our first chat was the completion date of this dictionary, 2050-2050, a cool 150 years after the publication of the first volume. A dictionary that is so sort of all-inclusive like that, the moment you hit the last word, I mean, if ever there was a time when you could say a language was dead, it would be when you finish the dictionary that is the never-ending dictionary. Yeah. I have fears around that. Right? I mean, you can't ever say with English, currently spoken by billions of people around the world, you you could never end the dictionary. You, You could only end it if people stopped speaking it. Yeah, like Merriam-Webster adds new words every year. I think there's some words that I was like, well, if I worked over there, (laughs) I don't know if I'd sign off on that one. But yeah, that's the end. You know, Caesar's not coming back with a rebuttal. Mel Brooks may come back and (laughs) add a word or two. but (laughs) Right. That kind of bums me out, too. But you know what? Because they've been working on it for so long, like, I don't know. I don't know if we'll have to worry about that. Like, will they finish this in our lifetime? I don't know. Well, the thing is, when we finish, and we're all, I mean, really focused on getting to the end as fast as we can, 
there will be a need to go back and add things because there are new words in ancient Latin that have been discovered beginning with A that were not included when the A volume was published. And hopefully there'll be some way of including that information or processing that information. Maybe it would be another project, but the ambition I think will never fully be realized. So maybe that's reassuring for you because then then the Latin language would never really be dead in that sense. Well, that gives me hope. That means that it's still very much alive. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I went into this episode kind of like, I don't really believe there is such a thing as a dead language, but I certainly mm-hmm. had my questions about Latin. And I've come out of it just, no, I, I don't think it's a dead language at all. I mean, it's clearly not. People are speaking it. The dictionary is still a dynamic thing. It very much has a place in the world. Yeah, as it should. I mean, just the idea of sort of having to add to this dictionary and sort of make it like, well, you know, it's just like any other dictionary. I I think that's the coolest part. I love that. I want to get a copy of it in 2050 when it's done. (laughs) I'm going to go to my local bookstore, (laughs) place an order. Well, Christina, thank you so much for telling me about why you care so much about Latin. And thank you for doing such a deep dive and and getting these really great answers that, I don't know, they, they really sort of just give me uh, just all these positive feelings about Latin. And I love the idea that, if anything, this is further incentive to study it because now there's going to be this tome to refer to should anybody want to pick it up someday, you know, if they didn't get a chance to do it in school. Many thanks to Christina Quinn. Listen on to the end of this episode, and you'll hear about her adventures in Italy. Also, thanks to Abby Holt, Diane Warren Anderson, and everyone else at the Latin Conversation Group. Thanks also to Adam Gitner and to Karis Joe, aka Guenevera, whose ideas about Latin, how to think about it, and how to teach it, well, they deserve their very own episode. Maybe next year. Tina Toby is our sound designer. Alison Shaw manages our social media and newsletter. If you haven't subscribed yet, the newsletter comes out every two weeks. It's fun, it's newsy, it can even be gossipy. Sign up at subtitlepod.com slash newsletter. One more time, subtitlepod.com slash newsletter. Subtitle is a member of the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. It's worth checking out all of the Hub and Spoke podcasts, but here's one of them. Rumble Strip, which tells extraordinary stories about ordinary people. If you haven't heard the recent episode, Finn and the Bell, you need to right now. I haven't heard a heartbreaking story like this told so movingly and respectfully. To listen to Rumble Strip and all of the Hub and Spoke podcasts, go to hubspokeaudio.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Have you been to to Rome? Have you been to Italy? I have not been to Rome. I have been to Italy. I was in Florence, year, like senior year in college, like backpacking. Was that exciting? Did you see any Latin graffiti? No. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I don't, there was nothing about that trip that I remember where I'm thinking like, hey, look at all the Latin stuff. Like, just no. But, you know, I'd like to provide the disclaimer that prior to going to Florence, We'd spent like a week in Amsterdam, and it was my senior year in college. I think I hear you. Yeah.
So, you know, maybe there's just a lot I don't remember. (laughs) Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Exploring the Human Endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.